science story. Huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about moving to new places. When I moved to New York at the age of 21, I had never even been here before. <laughs> All I knew was that buildings were tall and things were expensive. And listeners, let me tell you, all of that turned out to be true. <laughs> Plus, there was this thing called SantaCon, and there were rats big enough to carry slices of pizza, which was something I had not anticipated. <laughs> so for the first year or so, I wasn't sure that New York was really for me. But then I got involved in the storytelling community here. And even more importantly, I got a rent-stabilized apartment, which helps. And now that I've been here for over a decade, I'm no longer suitable for polite society. I yell at people on escalators now. They won't let me back in Ohio. <laughs> Our storytellers today were also transformed by the places they relocated to. Let's just hope in a slightly more positive way. Our first story today is from Edith Gonzalez. It was recorded in February 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was My Love Affair with Science. I was absolutely terrified of my seventh grade biology teacher. And not for creepy, inappropriate reasons, but because I couldn't figure him out. It was my seventh school in as many years, and so I was always the new kid walking in, makes you a little nervous, but I walked into the classroom, and on the board it said, find your assigned seat, and there was a chart. So we file in, we sit down, and just as the bell rings, he enters from that weird little side door in some classrooms, and he walks in, and he picks up the chart, and he doesn't interact with us by saying, you know, have you call out. He just looks at the chart, sees who's missing, marks it, and then turns around and begins to write stuff on the board and lecture. He had not heard of the Socratic method. It was very clear by the way he ran out that little side door the second the closing bell rang that he did not want to interact with us at all. And this made me a little bit nervous because when you move as much as I did, there were sometimes gaps between the time you leave the old school and the time you start the new school. And sometimes for me that was weeks, and sometimes it was months. And when I would start in the new place, English class, social studies, that sort of stuff, I could handle. I was a straight A student. I could read the textbook and figure it out for myself. But math and science, sometimes there are concepts that need a little bit more nuanced explanation or you have questions, and catching up was always a challenge. And as I said, I was a straight-A student, but it didn't mean that I was excellent in those subjects. It meant that I was excellent at class participation, so that if I could kind of get a B on the exams and the work, that, you know, being charming or te teacher's pet or something else, always hand in the air, that it would kind of push me over into the A range. And the reason I really, really, really needed to get an A was because my mother had the expectation 
that I would get straight A's. Now, I grew up in a very working class, very strict uh, Puerto Rican single parent household. And my mom did not have the same expectations for my siblings. But because I had already set the standard starting in kindergarten that I was going to get A's, that was the expectation and you were not allowed to do less. So there was no reward for excellence, but there were consequences for less than an A. And it really began to stress me out because she, she valued other things. She was very old school and she thought that girls really needed to um, be good at more feminine things maybe. We, we learned how to sew, we learned how to cook. My sister and I learned how to sew and how to cook, how to make a nice home. Um, she thought that girls should be quietly ornamental, perhaps is the best word. And I was not ornamental and I was definitely not quiet. So we had a little tension there. So I'm in my science class and not only does this teacher not interact with us, it was the first time I had ever received a syllabus. And on the syllabus there are two things that immediately freak me out. The first one is, clearly states, only one person will receive an A in this class. <laughs> the second thing was there was a term project that was the majority of your grade, and this was on botany. And we were supposed to do a botanical survey of our yard. And the building that I lived in, I mean, that makes the assumption that you have a yard. I had this little sort of half concrete postage stamp um, area in front of my house that had one pine tree, dandelions, and some grass. So I thought this is not going to be a compelling report at the end of this semester. So I did what any, you know, yeah, any truly nerdy bookish kid does, and I went to the library because I could not ask this teacher and I could not ask at home how to do this. So I go to the library and it was the first time I had ever lived in a suburban place and this library was really new and it was a very affluent suburb. And I walked in and I just remember, I mean, I can still smell that dusty book smell combined with the toxic off gas of acrylic carpets that they put down in the 70s. And I was so thrilled. And I meet the librarian and I tell her what I have to do. And she did something for me that was life changing. She introduced me to Peterson Field Guides. And if you don't know what a Peterson Field Guide is, I will tell you, it is a catalog of um, a certain area of all the natural things in a certain grouping for that area. The first book she uh, handed me was Peterson Field Guide to Northeastern Trees. <sighs> and then Peterson Field Guides to New England Wildflowers, Shrubs, you know, the whole shebang. So I'm sort of giddy with this and I'm flipping through them and I'm so excited because my imagination runs wild and I think there is a guy named Peterson who's out in the world and he is collecting all of this information from each place. And I kept thinking, it's one guy. I did not know that science was a team sport. And then I start thinking, this is his job. How do you get a job going around 
collecting botanical samples. So I get very excited by this idea. So much so that I begin to collect a sample of every plant that I encounter from my front door to the bus stop. And it's a long couple of blocks. So I start collecting this stuff and I even find a plant press at a, um, like a tag sale for like 25 cents. So I'm there drying leaves and bunches and there are seeds and twigs and all kinds of crap. And I'm drawing, uh, drawing little illustrations of each phase of growth for each of these plants. And I share a room with my sister and she is probably the loveliest person in the world and really patient because there's just, I mean, piles and piles of this stuff all over the room. And as it's getting towards the end, towards when this is due, I, um, I have it all laid out on the kitchen table and the kitchen counters. And it's, it's classified into these sort of bunches. And I'm trying to mount these to paper to kind of make something that I can hand in. And my mom walks into the kitchen and she looks at it. And I'm waiting for her to say, get this crap out of here because you know, it's time for you to make dinner. But she doesn't. She sees that I'm getting really frustrated with this. And she says, get in the car. And we go to the grocery store. And we collect a whole mass of the kind of cardboard boxes, the corrugated cardboard that they put canned goods in, so they're really stiff, and a bunch of brown paper bags. And we get home, and she c- makes a template and starts cutting out pages. And then she uh, decides to cut out frames, um, like, like a picture frame size that fit on top of the page. And she mounts them together, stacks them, to create almost a shadow box, a little indentation on each page, so that I can put in the illustrations and the sample, and I calligraphied on brown paper all the scientific names. <laughs> it was so exciting. And we start stacking these things up, and then they don't get squished, you know? So, so this thing starts to grow and grow and grow. And she's really talented with fabric, and she can sew and everything, so she makes a cover, this cloth-bound cover for this huge, massive book. And it sort of doesn't, I mean, it's, it's huge. And then she's like, hmm. And she goes and she gets an old leather belt and puts it around it and like a book strap that some like 19th century kid would be walking around with. It looks straight out of Harry Potter. And so the day it's due, I shove it in a like black plastic garbage bag because it's pouring rain out. And I get to school and go get into the science class. And of course, the teacher's not there yet. And I go to hand it in. And at the edge of, you know, those uh, slate-topped desks that the teachers have in science classrooms, at the end of this is a big wooden tray. And that's where you turn in your homework and stuff. So I go up to hand it in. And I'm pulling it out of the plastic garbage bag. And I see everybody else's report. And they are in those Mead Trapper Keeper folders. Some of them even have that very slick, clear plastic report cover on it. And they are typewritten on electric typewriters, which was a thing then. And I pull this thing out. And I hear some kid in the class making this really snide comment about garbage. And I just throw it into the tray and the whole thing makes this huge thunk on the desk and I am mortified and I go back to my seat and I'm thinking I'm I'm failing this because clearly I misunderstood what we were supposed to do because everybody else did this very different kind of report so a week goes by and I'm back in class 
and I walk in and the bell rings teacher comes in and he drops all the graded papers into the tray and mine is not there. And he says, Edith, see me after class. And I don't know a single word that he said for that entire class period because I'm so freaked out, not just that I'm going to fail, but that I'm going to have to go home and tell my mother that I failed. And class finishes, people pick up their reports, they go, and I go up to his desk after class. And I'm so scared that I can't say anything. And he gestures, I sit down. And I'm there waiting for him to say something, and he's not saying anything, and I'm not saying anything, and it feels like about four years of silence go by. And he picks up the book, and the belt is missing. I don't know what the hell he did with it. And he hands it to me. And I still don't know what he's expecting me to do. And he's there. He's got this like steely gray flat top and steely gray eyes. And I'm like, <laughs> And he flips open the cover, and there on the cover in big red circled letter is my grade. And he said, you know that I only give one A. And I only give one A because only one person can be the best. And what you didn't know is that in addition to competing for this one A that I just gave you is you were also competing for a spot in the Talcott Mountain Science Center's Young Scientist Program. Here is the permission slip, get your mother to sign it, and next Saturday you'll be heading up to go learn how to be a scientist. So I'm like, oh, I feel like, I feel like a condemned prisoner that has been given a pardon by the governor. So I pick up my book, I'm all excited, and I'm thinking that I got this grade and it was clear, even in the moment that he's telling me this awesome news, that he does not like me at all. <laughs> he doesn't like anybody. And that he doesn't have to like me. And so I kind of got a little crush on science at that moment, because I thought, I like science, and that's what's important here. So I go home, and you know, my mom, she's busy as usual, as any single parent would be, and I give her my permission slip, and she kind of half looks at it, and she signs it. And uh, the next uh, Saturday, I go get on the bus, and two and a half hours up to the top of this mountain in Connecticut somewhere. I um, step off the bus, they gather us, and this young woman takes us on a nature walk. And at the time, I thought she was probably like the coolest person I had ever seen in my whole life. And she's seemed like so knowledgeable. She was probably just like a first year graduate student, but she was awesome. And we're walking through the forest and she gestures to this little shrub thing, plant-like item. And she says, the common name is Princess Pine, but it's not an evergreen. This is Lycopodium obscurum, and this species has, has existed for 400 million years. And about 300 million years ago, it grew to be over 100 feet tall, taller than any of the trees that we're standing under right now. And I was like, <laughs> My whole mind just expanded in that moment with the concept of evolution in play and deep past, deep time. I was so excited by this notion. So I go home and I say to my mom, like, 
like I, I mean I, I was thinking my voice got so high only dogs could hear it I was so excited and I'm just telling her about what I learned and that oh the next weekend they're gonna teach us to use the telescopes in the observatories and we gotta use filters so we don't burn our eyeballs out looking at the sun like I was so crazily excited and she looks at me and says I thought this was just one time she said because it doesn't really matter we're moving. That was Edith Gonzalez. Edith is a native New Yorkan with four graduate degrees in various subdisciplines of anthropology and archaeology. By day, she is a historical anthropologist and senior administrator at the City University of New York, researching capitalism, introduction of non-native species, and bioprospecting in the 18th century English-speaking Caribbean. By night, she has a slight obsession with Lord of the Rings, don't we all? And she has performed at many New York storytelling shows such as Take-Two Storytelling and is a two-time Smut Slam champion. Our next story today is from Melta Malamdar. It was recorded in January 2019 at the Highline Inn and Ballroom Lounge in Atlanta. The theme that night was transformation. When I was born in 1977, my parents waited for three days for my aunt to arrive so that she can name me. I know it sounds strange in American culture to be named by someone other than your parents, but in Turkish culture, this is actually an honor. I always loved the fact that my aunt named me. She was so much loved in the family, an amazing cook, fun aunt, and a great storyteller. We all associate names with certain characteristics. So in my family, uh, my name was associated with words like troublemaker, <laughs> naughty, lazy with schoolwork, rule breaker, talkative, messy, a lot of words like this. I definitely did not have a good reputation in our household. <laughs> I always got in trouble and I really hated the rules. In fact, my aunt one day told my mom that she should have named me Ruzgar, which means wind, a kind of disruptive wind. <laughs> so if you hear my name in our household, Maltam, the first reaction is, what does she do now? I really hated rules, and basically I was not the proper Turkish girl. But somehow, I managed to get in college. I really hated school, but somehow I ended up in college. I was able to finish it. And after college, in my degree in education, there were not many opportunities. My brother was a PhD student at Georgia Tech at that time. He urged me to come to Atlanta so I can go to Language Institute, study English, and try to figure out what I want to do with my life. 
Well, I was attending a Georgia Tech Institute. A good friend of mine uh, took me to the Georgia State University so I can learn about the master's programs. I didn't think much will come out of it. My GPA was super low, and I really never had an interaction with a professor in a one-on-one setting before. But here I was, sitting in this American professor's office who was so interested in what I was trying to say. I was shocked. When I got in the master's program, my parents didn't believe me. <laughs> I had to get the acceptance letter translated in Turkish and mail them so that they can believe me. I had great professors at Georgia State. They made me love learning. One of my professors couldn't pronounce my name. So he gave me this nickname of Mel. I loved it. I thought everybody in America has nicknames. <laughs> Basically, when you have a nickname, you are accepted. The people love you. <laughs> I grew up watching a lot of American TV shows like Cosby Show. So I thought I knew what the whole American culture is about. Once you have a nickname, you are basically an American, right? <laughs> well, I really tried. I tried to have casual talks uh, on campus, introducing myself as Mel, hoping that everybody can see how much I was assimilated in the culture. I continued to watch more American shows like Gilmore Girls, Friends, <laughs> Seinfeld, so that I am not left out of conversations. <laughs> With a nickname like Mal and all the knowledge about American shows, I thought I can be popular, I can make a lot of friends. But the reality is, as soon as I opened my mouth, only thing that the only the first thing that people saw was my foreignness. After September 11, it was hard to make friends among, among Americans. I missed home more and more. But I decided to continue with my education. Uh, I love going to school here. I got in a PhD program in education policy studies. Again, it was more shocking news to my parents. <laughs> But it felt natural to me to mal here. Because the mal here was smart. Mal time here in Turkey was not that smart. So it felt very different. I was often reminded of my differences when I traveled outside of Atlanta in this one particular school, I was traveling with a friend, with another graduate friend, collecting data in classrooms. We arrived in the school, and I introduced myself to this teacher, as usual, Mel. She looked at me, and she just refused to talk to me. I was not sure what was going on. And my friend, who was American, didn't have an accent, when she talked to her, she continued to interact with her. I was really the, was, wasn't sure what was going on. Later that day, when we were observing her classroom, 
I noticed that she had a lot of students who were second language speakers. She also ignored them in her class. There was this one student, relatively with a better English, was trying to explain everything going on in the classroom to her friends. I felt terrible. Unfortunately, during my research in Georgia classrooms, I witnessed a lot of teachers avoiding saying different names, different than typical American suburban names. Every time I witnessed this, I felt terrible. I felt like these students were undervalued. I felt that I felt this connection with the students, with this kinship with the students. And I started thinking, who are we without our names, without our true names? We are all different, so are our names. <laughs> Things got a little harder for me in the United States. I start just hanging out with my Turkish friends avoiding small talks, because the reality about small talks for our foreigners is not beyond then, where are you from? When did you get here? Do you plan to go back? <laughs> Most people, when we speak, they have this deer in headlight look, shock face. They cannot go beyond hearing our accent. So that Maltem in Turkey who was so talkative and extroverted, became, became Mal, who is less talkative and introverted. One day, I was smoking in front of my apartment. I used to smoke. Um, my neighbor came out. He was a friendly American neighbor. He wanted to have a cigarette. I really wanted to avoid the small talk. But he was very friendly. It was right after Bush elections. I really wanted to know why people voted for Bush. <laughs> I was neither... <laughs> I was neither Republican or Democrat at that time. I had really little understanding of American politics. But I, wa I was against war, and I wanted to understand it. We had great conversation. At the end of the conversation, he asked my name. As usual, I said, Mal. And he asked my full name. I was surprised. Nobody ever asked my full name in a, com in a conversation like this before. I said, Meltem. And after a couple of times, he got it. I, I thought, well, it was not that difficult. This moment became very important in my life. This man became my husband later on. <laughs> After 2016 elections, I feel more immigrant than ever in this country, even though I am a United States citizen today. I get very self-conscious, in social settings, 
when I'm the only one with a different name, with an accent. I misunderstand a lot of jokes. I cannot really keep up with social cues. I get very large, uh, I get very shy in large parties because I never know how people are going to react to my accent or how tolerant they are going to be. But the reality is I am experiencing what it's like for so many immigrants in this country. And today, I am very proud to live this most American stories. I am very proud to teach my fellow Americans the correct pronunciation of my name <laughs> given to me in my birth in Ankara. As immigrants, America pushes us away, pulls us back, always pulling and pushing. I realize that pushing away my name and pulling it back again is the story of this country. It's the story of searching for and then finding our place. Thank you. That was Meltem Alamdar. Meltem is a social scientist and native of Ankara, Turkey. She came to Atlanta in 2000 to attend Georgia Tech's Language Institute, then decided to pursue a master's and then a doctoral degree in education policy from Georgia State University. She is associate director and senior research scientist at Georgia Institute of Technology's Center for Education, integrating science, mathematics, and computing. Her research focuses on improving K-12 STEM education. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Paula Croxon, Tracy Rowland, Kelly Vinyl, and Mesa Salida. The podcast is produced by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and the Highline Inn and Ballroom for hosting these shows and to all of the many wonderful places I've had the opportunity to visit as a result of Story Collider. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.